Hello and welcome to the Addicts Anonymous podcast. I'm your host, Jim Mark. Today's episode 190 and we're going to be interviewing Justin. How you doing, Justin? Good. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. I'm ready to do this. How about you? All set. All right, man. Let's do this. Tell me about your childhood and growing up. All right. So um, my childhood, you know, it was a difficult childhood. I have a twin sister and an older brother. Um, I've been adopted twice and went through the foster care system. The reasons I was adopted, I was abused and molested and sold as a child for sex. Um, to my gym teacher was one of them, a few other people. How old were you? From the ages of, I can remember, 7 to 11. And we, in, a, in our household, it was so common that even at that age, my brother, sister, and I, we participated in sexual activities with each other because we didn't really know better. And looking back, you know, now I realize how bad it was. But looking back, it's everything we participated in between the abuse, abusing each other, getting abused, being trafficked as young children to men and women and by our own first adoptive mom, our birth parents. I don't know who they are. They gave us up when we were babies. So we watched growing up people doing drugs, we were doing drugs as at the age of probably nine. Oh, wow. Ten. What was the first drugs you ever did? The first thing I ever did was meth. Really? So you just yeah. went right to it? Well, I was told because my brother, he is older than me, started out and everything. And he told me, he's like, hey, do this. You won't feel anything. He's like, you'll be fine. And so it started off small. Um, it started off, I didn't really understand what I was doing when I first tried it. So I just took a little rock and swallowed it. Huh. And, does that do anything know, to you? Uh, it does a little bit, not much from what I remember. Um, as I got older, my experiences changed with it. It went from numbing just to using for the heck of it to enjoy it. Um, but it started off at such a young age. We were, me and my brother and sister, we were, dabbling in all sorts of things at a young age where were you able to get this stuff so young my birth my first adoptive mom she was heavy into everything and she didn't even care we'd we'd go into her purse or go into her room and grab it no shit and it was it was weird because the three of us we grew up in the same household the same kind of trauma but as we got older the three of us went in different ways on dealing with it so my yeah, sister, everybody, I mean, it makes sense. Everybody say everybody processes trauma differently. Yeah. Well, my sister went to counseling. My brother, I guess, tried to forget about it. And I turned to drugs because that was the most helpful thing when I was a kid. So I stuck with it. And so my childhood, you know, started off with early drug use, abuse, rape. By men and women and growing up knowing that I was raped by men uh, affected me a lot just for the simple fact it kind of obscured my identity like I didn't know like does that make me you know into men am I gay because of that and there's nothing wrong with that answer if I was but it it kind of messed who with who I was because I didn't know how to identify as myself anymore yeah it could be I'm, I'm only imagining that could be a confusing time yeah and so with that, you know, 
I couldn't answer those questions. It became more traumatic for me. And I just started diving deeper and deeper into other things and other things considered of what my parents did to me. I started doing to other people, which would mean selling women, you know, getting, taking advantage of whatever I could of other people to get what I needed. And so that was the start, just the tip of the iceberg, you know, as a child, waking up every day, not knowing, you know, hey, is today going to be a good day, a bad day? Either way, I'm sneaking into my mom's room or I'm sneaking into my mom's purse and getting what I need to make sure I can numb myself. The first few times, I didn't understand what I was doing until I started watching her do it. And then I saw her using a straw and snorting it. And that's when I realized, oh, so this is how you do this. And that's when it really started to affect me. That was probably at the age of nine or 10. That Were I really you snorting coke or meth? Meth. Yeah. Meth. Because we grew up in a household. My mom was not very well off. I mean, she was getting money for us because she adopted us and the government was providing her money and all that. All that, I mean, we were always moving around from house to house because we couldn't afford rent. We were in government housing for a while. So from what I know, she just bought the cheapest stuff she could find. And, you know, so that that included, you know, meth. Um, We dabbled in other stuff like weed and alcohol when we were young. Um, The alcohol was definitely a big factor when I was young. I actually enjoyed that more than anything. When I was younger, How old were you when you first tried alcohol? I would probably say eight or nine again. Everything kind of coincided with each other at the same time. Um, but I realized, you know, if I use this, if I used meth, it kind of, you know, got my mind away from things. And if I used alcohol, it got my body away from things. And that was the big thing for me is because I didn't want to feel anything at all because one, it was painful. And two, you know, I just didn't know how to handle it at that age. So as we grew up and got older, we got out of her house because we were coming to school, you know, with the same clothes on for multiple days straight. We were, I mean, at 11 years old, I didn't even weigh more than, probably 63 pounds so i was really really skinny um i ended up developing seizures because getting my head smashed through walls too many times probably also related to the drugs and the alcohol at early use i still have seizures today i'm on medication for that now um but with all this stuff taken into consideration children's services got involved children's services you know started asking questions we told them answers that we didn't know meth was wrong we didn't know alcohol was wrong so we were telling you know children's services yeah we get into this cabinet we we, we'll drink this or we'll get into her purse and we'll take those rocks and snort them and put them up our nose or whatever children's services got involved and we got put into foster care um foster care that as children's services found out that me my brother and sister we were all sleeping with each other sleeping with whoever my mom brought over they wanted to separate us um, under the law that was Florida, because that's where I lived at, you were not allowed to separate twins. Me and my sister are a twin. So we stayed together. My brother got separated away. We all ended up in Ohio. 
which is ironic. He ended up in Suffield. I ended up in Akron. And as I got through the foster care system, finally got adopted by my family now, who are great, as I realize now. But it took me turning into my 30s to realize just how helpful they were trying to be. They sent me to counseling. I refused all their help. I didn't want anything to do with them. I was still using drugs, trying to sneak it. And they were finding out quickly. So they started doing random drug tests on me in my own house when I was a kid. Um, Ended up going into juvie multiple times for all different kinds of acts, for troubled kids, for drugs, for alcohol. As I turned 18, they kicked me out, slash I moved out was probably more the better answer because they said, you can stay if you follow our rules or you can leave if you don't. I chose to leave. So I wouldn't really say they kicked me out. It was more of my choice to leave. Um, And that's when my, now that I had no limits on me, because I didn't care about the law, that's when everything went downhill for me. Um, What started off as using when I could turned into using every day. I was preying upon the weaker people in the world. So, you know, I was getting women to sell themselves out in the world so I could get money to buy more drugs. I was buying and selling drugs repeatedly. Going back just a little bit, <clears throat> did you go to school during your childhood? How was school affected by all this? I failed school. I, I, I got my GED now, but I paid, like, you were lucky to see me in school. Because um, as early, before I got adopted, I was missing school all the time, or I wasn't even, or I was going and then just walking out. Didn't care. I didn't understand that, you know, Seven years old, you're probably not supposed to walk home from school by yourself. I didn't care. So I would just leave school. Um, I'm, I was smart, but I wasn't, you know, book smart. So I knew, like, how to sneak out. I knew how to get away without being caught. And by the time they realized I left, I was already home. My mom would say, oh, yeah, we're, we picked him up or, you know, he was sick or blah, blah, blah. And you miss so many days of school, children's services gets involved as well. So, I mean, I probably missed in one school year, half half the school days, at least, I was missing. Yeah, it's no good. Yeah, so it, w- it was rough because when I got to my family now, I pretty much had to start all over. I was in eighth grade with probably a fourth grade education. So, it, you know, I could barely read. I couldn't do math. And the only math I could do was not legal. <laughs> so, you know, it was my, my education was gone. I couldn't read. So children's services got involved. And that was summer schools. And, you know, my parents now, they put, I, I want to say a, the best way to describe it is they kind of put a leash on me. You know, I couldn't go anywhere without them knowing. I couldn't do anything without them knowing because if I did do anything, I was always getting myself in trouble. My parents had to stop having alcohol in the house. They adopted two traumatized kids and they had to change their whole life for us. So they were no longer allowed to have alcohol in the house, you know, because if they did, I would sneak and drink it. You know, they, they found that out quickly when they, when we first got into their house, you know, I'm 11 years old and I'm sneaking downstairs at one o'clock in the morning to drink whatever my dad had in the liquor cabinet. 
and he'd come home and I'd be laying on the, he'd wake up in the morning. I'd be laying on the kitchen floor and puke and, you know, Jack Daniels bottle or whatever he had at the time was right beside me. And I would literally at that age drink until I passed out. Um, so that was, you know, the basics of my childhood, um, before getting until I was 18, you know, my, like I said, my sister, I hated her growing up because she handled everything in a lot different way than I did. Uh, she went to counseling and she dealt with her trauma. I didn't want to deal with my trauma. I wanted to numb my trauma. So she earned my parents' trust, was able to go do things while I was stuck at home, sneaking away, sneaking out. I ran away at 16 and tried to meet up with a girl at, in Cincinnati, Ohio, that I met online in a chat room. So it wasn't my brightest idea. Um, stole my parents' credit card to do that. Ended up, you know, using their credit card, getting a taxi. And I got caught somewhere down near Cincinnati. The police picked me up. And turns out, you know, thank goodness it was a legit person. <laughs> but, you know, girl got in trouble. I got in trouble and ended up getting my wasn't allowed to use a computer, wasn't allowed to use a phone. You know, I had everything out of my room besides my drawers and clothes. And that was it because anything else they couldn't trust me with. My parents ended up putting locks on their doors because they were worried about what I would do to them. Because I was such an angry child as well. I never really got violent, but I was always angry. Um, and then that leads me into my adulthood. You know, like I said, uh, they forced me to go to school. I never paid attention, never did my schoolwork, never did my homework. So I failed school, left at 18, um, and just went to the people I knew. I knew people at school that were using, that smoked weed. So I stayed with them. I'd stayed on their couch. I'd, you know, figure out ways, a place to stay for at least the first few years until I got on my own feet by selling drugs. Um, I would date girls and use girls in their bodies to get stuff I needed. So I'd, it was a very similar circumstance to my childhood. I'd be like, Hey, you know, I need you to go do this for me so I can get this. So we can have this, this, and this, and this. And, you know, they were very, they were already at a low point in their lives. So that's who I found myself attracted to was people that I could use. If I couldn't get something from you, then you didn't matter to me. So after a while, I got good at what I was doing, ended up making good, a good amount of money, getting my own place. Now I was using, having a place, a stable place and getting involved in bigger crowds. Um, I started selling more and more to the point that it got dangerous for me to have money in my pocket at all because of the people I was around. I've been jumped, shot, and stabbed because of my usage. Um, and multiple car accidents throughout it. I did, I did get my license, lost them the day I got them for speeding and just didn't care because I never went to court. Um, so as, as the time went on, you know, the crimes, the usage got worse. I ended up crashing a car into a tree being drunk, I ended up, you know, getting into more fights, getting around more 
people that were dangerous and then selling more and more stuff. And then my usage got worse because now I was not just doing meth, but heroin, fentanyl, anything that could numb me that I didn't have to think about all the stuff I was doing or went through, I was using. Um, that's takes me to about when I was 19. <laughs> so let me ask you a question. This is um, fentanyl related. How do you know how much to do? Because I see these pictures where it shows like a few grains of salt and it says basically that's how much it takes to kill you. Um, well, for me, it wasn't really a matter of what would kill me or not. I didn't care if I died. So I used a little bit because I was, I was told the same thing that they're like, Oh, any small amount can kill you. So the first time I ever used fentanyl or heroin, I had somebody use it, get the correct amount for me. And they would shoot me up with it. And that way, I mean, it took multiple experiences, a couple overdoses to even get the right idea down. But then as I got into it, I realized, you know, if I mixed it with ice, it went better. There was less chances of, well, at least I thought there was less chances of overdosing if I used ice. And if my body temperature started getting too hot, then I knew I was using too much. Because that's when I started realizing, oh, your body heats up. And then that's when the overdose started happening is when my body got too hot. So it came with experiences of first, you know, knowing people who used it and they would teach me or do it for me until I learned how to do it. Because I just didn't learn, you know, how to stick a needle in my arm by myself. I had people to teach me that. And as I got, and obviously those people were not the greatest people to be around but you know i had they had stuff i needed and they could teach me stuff that i needed to know because there's different experiences with the different methods of ingestion of everything so you know i wanted the best experience i could the most potent experience i could so i found the people that could teach me that and it took that was at 19 maybe 20 of the latest of me knowing exactly what I needed to do to get high and, you know, how to maintain it. Um, my drug of choice was meth. I did use everything else, but my drug of choice was meth. Um, I found that that was the best and the least likely way to overdose was using meth. So as I got older, um, I started using more and more. I started getting involved with certain Italian mafias and selling bulk pounds at a time um, to the point I met my, well, she's my fiance. Now we actually used together back in the day. I met her and I would, I lost my car cause I crashed it. So I'd have her drive me places to sell what I needed to sell. And then I was late on a payment and had my jaw smashed in by a bat. And instead of her, you know, taking or calling the police i just said hey take me to the hospital drop me off and go and i will tell them that you know i'll make up some story the story i made up you know i was riding my buddy's dirt bike and ran it into something and hurt myself um so i ended up having reconstructive surgery all over my left side of my face and there's titanium plates on the whole left side of my face um and this woman that i'm this girl that I was with that was doing all this stuff for me you know I got hurt she was a went to a Christian school very didn't really have much trauma 
in her life until me. <laughs> I became this girl's trauma because I wanted her to be on the level I was where I was at with as far as using, feeling bad, you know, because if I could make someone feel worse than me, I felt better. And that was that was my whole goal. So it was get as high as possible and make everybody else around me feel as bad as I did. So I started, I turned this girl who grew up in a Christian family, a good home, and I turned her into something she was never supposed to be. And realizing how bad I hurt her now affects me the most, but at the, it goes to show you, you know, just where these drugs took me was I didn't care. Um, you know, I would leave. Uh, we had our own place or her place. Technically by this time I lost my house. So I was staying at her place. She had a job. She was paying for everything. I would steal her car. I'd steal her money and I would leave or she'd come home and there'd be a different girl in the bed. I was cheating on her all the time and she'd stayed with me. And I don't know why, but she did. Um, I got, eventually I got caught by the police. I got, Someone told on me and I got pulled out of a backseat of a car. I was with a few buddies at that time. And the cops came up. They knew who I was. I was well-known in Akron, Ohio. And they said, Justin Sayer, we need you to get out of the car. I was not in the right mindset. So I stepped out. And by the time I stepped out, I had two needles and a bag of ice fall out of my pocket. That was in my hoodie because it was cold out in the wintertime. They arrested me. I went to jail and spent a good amount of time in jail. It was my first felony charge. So I did end up staying like six months in jail. I got out. They had me go to a, a turning point program where you do everything you're supposed to do. You can get your felony expunged. I was like, all right, cool. So I, I, I faked it for a while. I tried doing everything I was supposed to do. And then I got surprised with a surprise drug test. And I was already high. And I knew I was going to fail. So I shot up before I went into her office, ended up overdosing in front of my probation officer and my mom. And that's when everything started to click for me. That's when I realized I, I, I've gone too far because when I finally came to my I didn't recognize who my mom was. I didn't know where I was, what I was doing or who I, who I was or where I was at. So I ended up going into rehab because they can't in Ohio. They can't, if you know you overdose, they can't charge you with anything. So I ended up going into rehab, failed two rehabs because of usage until I finally decided, you know, I've had enough. I've seen multiple friends pass away. I probably should be dead by now. This is my thinking at this time. And mind you, this is 27. I was at 27 at this time. How old um, are you now? I'm 32. Okay. So. You know, 27, I, I decided I, I can't keep doing this. And that's when I overdosed in front of my mom. I decided to go to rehab. I got kicked out of two rehabs. One was a Christian rehab my parents chose. I got kicked out of that rehab for being violent towards the staff member. Um, they were very religious. I'm not a very religious person. I'm spiritual, but not religious. Um, you know, my, I believe in a higher power. It's just they were the... Christianity, part of recovery, you know, Jesus Christ and all that. And that's great. If it, worked. It, it didn't work for me at that time. It was too early. 
to believe in a God that loved me and cared for me with all the trauma that I went through as a kid, you know, being sold for sex, being abused and raped. I didn't believe in God. So it was very hard for me to understand that there was a God that loved me with my child. No, I can imagine it's, it's a hard thing to grapple with. I, I, I still, still have a hard time grappling with it. Um, you know, the one thing that that rehab taught me was trauma is trauma. And what may be traumatic for me might not be traumatic for you and vice versa. But we, I can't judge someone's trauma on what my trauma was, you know, because I would listen to these people's stories and rehab is I'm be like, that's traumatic. I was like, that's a normal day for me. Yeah. I'm like, what? And I would judge people based on their trauma because I'd be like, oh, you're not that bad. You, you, you go through what I went through. And so that, I felt I used it as an excuse on why I was as bad as I was, on why I kept relapsing, on why I kept wanting to use. I used my trauma as an excuse. It was the biggest excuse I had because to me, it was a sympathy card. I could get sympathy out of everybody for it. I mean, at that time, you're in rehab and you tell them, hey, I was raped by my gym teacher at seven years old. You know, you'd be surprised the sympathy you get. <laughs> so I would use that. And I could get myself out of a lot of trouble with that, with that trauma card. But eventually it wears off. Eventually that sympathy and that excuse wears off because even with as traumatic as it was, it wasn't why I was using anymore. It might've been the reason I started off, but I continued to use because I enjoyed it. I liked it. What was first to numb everything then turned into something I enjoyed and liked. And that was where I had to take a deep look at myself and be like, okay, so I went to a rehab. It was called First Step Recovery. It's out in Warren, Ohio. It's a 30-day inpatient program rehab. And they were the ones who didn't accept my bullshit. They're, they're the ones who are like, okay, you want to keep using your trauma for a reason to go back out? They're like, you can just tell us and we'll let you leave. They're like, we're not going to keep you here. They're like, you decided to come here. You decide if you want to stay. We're not going to keep you here if you don't want to be here. They're like, you want to go use when you're ready to come back and ready to give this a full try. Let us know. Yeah, I remember when I was at rehab and somebody said something to the head of our detox unit. Like he used to have a meeting every morning. Mm -hmm. And someone said something to him. He goes, dude, the door goes both ways. You came in, you could leave. Nobody's making you stay here. Right. So it's your, and, I, and that's when it hit me. I was like, I could leave right now. I was like, technically mm -hmm. it doesn't. And then I was like, but I'm not going to. And that's when I realized I had a, a problem. Yeah. When I said to myself, don't leave. You need this. Yeah, it was very similar. The whole don't leave, you need this. Because in my mind, it was like, this guy doesn't, this guy doesn't fall for it. He's not falling for anything I say. And I'm like, why? I'm like, why do I need an excuse? And that's when I he even told me, he's like, why do you need an excuse to leave? You can just leave. And very similar to the, you know, the door go, goes both ways. So I was like, same mindset. I was like, I need to stay. And so I, I decided to give everything to recovery at that moment. I was like, you know what? I'm going to give this a shot. It, what's the worst thing that it doesn't happen? I get 30 days and rent free and I at least get fed. Uh, yeah, I got to go to some meetings and all that, but I'm going to give it everything I've got. So I really buckled down and decided, you know, where, where, cause 
as my counselor told me, he's like, you don't just use to use. He's like, you, you started off, it might, it might be that way now, but you started off wanting to change something, wanting to forget something. He's like, what, what's caused, what's the root of your problem, Justin? He's like, you need to look back and figure out what you're trying to avoid dealing with. And that was my childhood. So as we went through counseling, as we went through meetings, I had to do thinking for a change, IOP, all those, you know, good choices, bad, bad choices, good choices, um, all these different classes, which I don't know if they have them around your guys' area, but uh, they're horrible classes. Mm-hmm. They're, they're great, but they're, they're very long, very intense classes. They really make you stop and think about what 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 your life was like they make you deal with the the base of your trauma and that's where i learned you know i was creating trauma in my life i was creating bad events in my life just so i didn't have to deal with the main trauma of my life because it was easier to deal with all this other bull crap i was creating getting arrested it was easier to deal with going to jail and getting arrested than dealing with my childhood that was the main thing um and that's when I buckled down. I got a sponsor. He decided, you know, he didn't decide. I decided to work through the 12 steps with him. Um, and that was the best and worst experience of my life. Uh, having to forgive was like, you know, first accepting I had a problem. That came naturally. I was like, okay, well, I already accepted that when I decided to stay here. You know, admitting that, you know, I had a problem with drugs and alcohol, then admitting that a higher power could save me from that. That's where I was lost. I was like, okay, you know, I don't understand what you're saying. I don't believe in God. And he told me this story that he had a sponsee who wasn't religious or spiritual, but prayed to the tree in their backyard. And that that was their higher power was the tree in their backyard. And this person was sober for 15 to 20 years, probably still is to this day. I don't, I don't know the person they were talking about, but he was just telling me the story about it. And I was like, so I can have anything be my higher power. He's like, as long as it's greater than you, and it's not an individual person. I was like, okay. I chose the meetings, the rooms. I chose NA as my higher power. And that's what started me off. You know, I was like, okay, this book has helped many people. If that's my higher power, it's not going to leave me wrong as long as I do what this book tells me to do. So I dove into the book. I dove in spending time with my sponsor, learning, ended up completing rehab and going to sober living for a year. Um, And that's when more traumatic crap happened. Uh, My sponsor ended up overdosing and dying. And that sent me back out. I chose to go back out because of that. Sorry. I chose to go back out because my sponsor went back out. And I was like, well, if he doesn't have to do it, and that was the excuse I needed. So I went back out, um, used one time, overdosed, came back. Um, And I was like, all right. So I decided I was going to try to do the steps again, but I was going to do them by myself. I didn't need anybody to teach me the steps because at that time I felt like the rooms failed me, that my sponsor failed me. I was, I was mad at NA, AA, whatever A you want to consider. I was mad at that time. And so I was like, I'll just do these steps myself. So I tried to work on myself. It didn't work out very well. I kept, I was able to stay clean, but I was angry all the time. 
I didn't know how to deal with the anger that was inside me. I was white knuckling everything. You know, I was working the steps, but I would say I was working haphazardly because I didn't believe in the steps because I was like, well, if the person who taught me to stay clean goes and dies, what hope is there for me? Um, so it eventually took, I ran into, I talked about her earlier, the girl I was with my fiance, she's my fiance now, but the girl I used, she ended up getting clean and sober way before I did. We ran into each other. She was in a meet. I ran into her in a meeting and she was telling me, you know, how much her life has changed, how well she's doing. And immediately in my head, I was like, Ding. I was like, there's somebody I could use that could help me all about me. So I started talking to her again and I started without even realizing it, using her as my higher power. I started using her as my reason to stay clean and she caught on to this quickly and she sat me down the one day and was like, listen, why, why are you doing this? Why are you here? Why do you come to these meetings? Why do you want to be clean? And I told her, I was like, I want to be clean so I can be a good person for you. I want to be clean. So, you know, I don't have to keep putting up with this bull crap anymore. I want to be clean so I can get a job and, she told me, she's like, you're doing this for all the wrong reasons. She's like, it's cool that you want to be clean for somebody else, you know, but until you learn that you want to do this for yourself, you're never going to work the program the correct way. And she, she introduced me to a bunch of guys and said, I want you to spend time with these guys. I want you to learn from them, embrace them as your family and just go from there. I was like, okay. So I moved into this sober living called Springtime of Hope. And I drowned myself with these guys. I did not hang out with females at all. They said, for a whole year, we are going to live together. We're going to work at the same job together. We're going to go to the same meetings together. And we're going to recover together. And so we did. For a full year, We, we there was four of us stayed in this house together. And we did everything together. And that got me on the start of my recovery, the actual correct path. I got a sponsor that with the, when I was with those guys. He's my sponsor to this day. And he was the one who was teaching me about my trauma. He was, he was the one helping me deal with the trauma. He's like, until you learn to forgive yourself for what, you, what happened as a child, until you learn to forgive yourself for what happened to you, you'll never learn to let others forgive you. You'll never accept other people's forgiveness. He's like, you can't make amends. You can't start rebuilding your path until you learn to deal with what you dealt with as a child. So it took five hour conversation of me talking to this guy and just pouring my heart out about everything that happened with my childhood to realize I'm not special. In my childhood, a lot of people have been through it in the same situation that I have gone through the same thing and it doesn't make me special. All that it does, he says, all that it does, he's like, I've heard your story before from a hundred different people that have been in recovery. He's like, your story, what it does is help you to lead others that have gone through the same thing. He's like, that's what your story does. And so he sat down with me. He sat down with me and my sister and my brother. And I got to talk to my sister and brother and hear them forgive me for the damage I did to them as a child and growing up and leaving them and not helping them. I got to hear the forgiveness from my family 
my mom and dad. We never did contact my first adoptive mom. That would have been a bad idea, I feel like. Um, but I was able to forgive her too. Um, because working through the 12 steps, I realized if I'm angry at her, I'm still holding on to stuff. I don't have to accept what she did to me, but I can let it go. I can forgive and move on because I don't want the drugs, the alcohol or her or my trauma controlling what I do. And that's what my sponsor taught me. He's like, you can't control what anybody else around you does, but you can control is how you react and respond to whatever situations put in front of you. And he's like, you can do that in a sober way or in a non-sober way. He's like, cause that's all we have. He's like, we got two choices to stay sober for today or not. He's like, there is no in between. And I, I embraced that. So the first six months, seven months in sobriety, I had to focus on just staying sober for today. And then I was able to focus on, you know, maybe I could look into a week's in advance, like, you know, but for the first six, seven months, it was just focusing on that day, just making sure I didn't use that day because anything more than that was hard to this day. I've almost got five years sobriety. I can't sit here and think about the rest of my life being sober. I can think about, you know, I can be sober for the next five years. I can be sober for as long as I've been sober, I can do it again. So I know I've done it once. Um, in between, in between all the recovery, working the 12 steps, forgiving and letting go of my past, I've now become a recovery coach at the Oriana House in Akron, Ohio, helping struggling people who have past trauma with abuse and rape and addiction, helping them to learn to recover. Um, recoveries gave me, I'm now engaged. I have a three-year-old son, which is, he's a, he's a little terrorist, but he's amazing. Congratulations on getting Thank engaged. You. Thank you. Um, and I'm actually engaged to the woman that, I originally met and destroyed um, the one who got me into that sober house with all those guys and said, this is where you need to be. Um, eventually we found our way back to each other um, and we got engaged. She's a nurse now. So, you know, what I've learned in recovery and I, the thing I try to help everybody understand is we're in complete control. We decide if we want to work at this or not. We decide if we want to recover or not. Um, it might not feel like it at times. It might feel like that our addiction is complete control. But the main thing is, you know, like that rehab told me, like my fiance told me, I have a choice. I can, it's and like you just said, the door swings both ways. I can walk out whenever time I want, but, but you, but it's realizing, you know, things aren't going to get better right away that instant gratification i like it's realizing that you're a seed and you're like i, I understand why that person prayed to a tree back then is because it takes time for a tree to grow and that's what our recovery is we're trees it takes time for us to grow in our recovery i don't have all the answers yet in my recovery and i never will and i've learned over the years that if i'm not working towards my recovery i'm working towards a relapse and so I continuously every day work towards my recovery. That's why I wanted to become a recovery coach is every day I get to work in recovery because not to help other people, but it helps me too. Yeah, because, absolutely. And that's the greatest thing is I, I never 
go a day without working in my recovery now. Because I know for me personally, if I stop, I lose everything I've had. You know, my recovery comes first for everything I've gained in this world. You know, a relationship with my brother, my sister, my family, my fiance, my son, a house, everything I've gained, I can lose it in a matter of a week if I go back out. And that's why I chose a field in recovery to work in. So I never forget getting to work with people who struggle in addiction like I did. And I hear the same story that I've said that I didn't think anybody else had. Um, people being abused and raped in their childhood, people with PTSD. Um, I've, I've dealt with people with schizophrenia and it's the same, same story. And what I thought made me so special and gave me a reason to use is exactly like my sponsor told me. All it did was gave me a reason to help other people out, to help guide people in their path of recovery, not, you know, walk them down the road, but show them the road. What they choose to do with that afterwards is up to them. Same thing my sponsor did for me. What I chose to do with my recovery now is up to me. But I realized in my recovery, for me personally, to deal with all that trauma, I can either hurt or help people. I get one of the two choices. I chose to help people now. I got tired of hurting people. I got tired of hurting myself. You know, if I if I could show you the the picture, the before and afters would be amazing. But I had a picture of when I got arrested to, to where I'm at now. Um, when I got arrested and went to jail, I was 96 pounds. Oh my God. I, I was really tiny. And then, you know, now I'm up, I'm actually getting a little bit overweight. <laughs> <laughs> That's the beautiful thing about recovery is we all gain weight. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's funny when I was going to rehab, they send you like an email to prepare you. Mm -hmm. and what they say in the email to bring clothes one size larger. Mm -hmm. Yep. Because over the 30 days, you're most likely to gain some weight. Yeah. I went from 98 pounds to 183 now. Yep. So I, I've gained, a, and that's, of course, in five years of recovery, but that's a lot of oh, weight. Most of the weight came on in my 30s. But um, the greatest thing that recovery give, has given me now is a peace of mind, is my life is, is it's simple. Recovery has made my life so much more simple. You know, I don't have to worry about when I'm going to use again or when I'm going to get high or who I need to be around. Recovery is giving me a life to where all I've got to worry about is doing the next right thing. And if I focus on that, then I'm okay. If I focus, if as long as my recovery comes first, everything else is going to work out just the way it needs to work out. And that's what I've learned in my recovery, you know, from being abused and raped as a child to overdosing and dying in front of my family to now I, I've got all this, a house, like a child, fiance, and not once, you know, my mom doesn't have to worry about me anymore. She doesn't wake up worrying about me, whether she's going to hear about me on the news or in the newspaper, you know. The most she gets to worry about is does she get to see her grandchild today or not now? Yeah. And it's great. So. Sounds like you know, life is going well for you. It has its ups and downs. 
Yeah, you know? every, every life does. That's part and of it. It's how you deal yeah. with it that makes a difference. Yeah, because they call it. I think that was the biggest. Speaking of that, that was the biggest thing to learn. Also, in recovery, was recovery has its ups and downs too. Life mm-hmm. will go great. It, like the first, like they call it, you know, the first thirty days in recovery is the pink cloud. Yeah, and learning that because first thirty days is great, but then it got hard. Um. And to this day, recovery has its ups and downs. I've seen a lot of things I wish I didn't see. I've lost a lot of friends that's gone back out. But, you know, it's every day I get to fight. And I, I, I get, I fight just to stay alive because, you know, I've learned in recovery that I'm, my life is worth living. And that's the greatest gift recovery gave me is, you know, past all the physical objects is I now believe in myself. I now believe my life is worth living and I want to help others feel that same joy of life is worth living. And it's worth, you know, they're, they're of value that people do care about them. That's great, bro. That's great, man. Getting towards the end here. I just wanted to say that I really appreciate you coming on the podcast and sharing Mm -hmm. your story with us. It means a lot. Of course. So how are you feeling? Uh, <laughs> little jittery, but okay. You know, my heart's pounding a little fast and this is the first time I've shared, even though it wasn't as in depth as I wanted it to be or in detail, cause I was so nervous too. It's the first time I've gotten, especially around another male besides my sponsor to hear that I was, what I went through. Yeah. So it was nerve wracking, but you know, at the same time, I feel a huge weight coming off of me and I'm excited. Yeah, no, it's good to get it off your chest and finally do something that you've been scared of and overcome it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it definitely feels good. I know the feeling. So did you have anything else that you want to throw in and that? Um, I just, you know, m- my last thing I want to say is everybody out there that's listening, you're worth recovery and that your life does have meaning and that if I can do it, I have a hundred percent faith that you guys can do it too. And I believe in you guys and I love you guys and care about you guys too. Thanks bro. That's great. All right, man. So do me a favor and just hang tight for a minute. And for everybody watching and listening, if you like what you saw and heard, go below, give us a like also subscribe to see when we upload new videos You can also check us out on all social media. We're on Twitter, Reddit, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok. Also check out our website, which is www.addicts-anonymous.com. There you're going to find plenty of free resources and literature. That's all we have for today. I hope you enjoyed it. And until next time.